Welcome, this is episode number four of Lime Ninja Radio. I'm your host, McKay Rippey, and I'm here with my producer, Aurora. Hello. And today we're speaking with Karen Smith and Lisa Hilton. Together, they're putting together a beautiful project called Red Shoe Day, which is a memorial to those who've lost their battle with Lyme disease. I still need to go out and get my red shoes. I'm going to do that sometime this week, so I'm, I'll post my pictures on Facebook, and I encourage everybody else to do the same. Aurora, will you tell us a little bit about Karen and Lisa? Yeah. Karen Smith, who lives in Australia, was working on her PhD when she contracted Lyme disease, and she now works as a patient advocate and raising awareness for Lyme disease. And Lisa Hilton lives in Wisconsin and is also a Lyme patient advocate. She contracted Lyme more than 20 years ago. Uh, They met through their work with the worldwide Lyme disease protest, raising awareness and recognition of Lyme disease as a global disease. And right now they are organizing the worldwide Red Shoe Day. For those who have died from chronic Lyme disease, uh, this year Red Shoe Day will be Friday, July 25th. And to find out more, go to WorldwideLymeAssociation.com. That's the website. Or you can look it up on Facebook. Just search for Red Shoe Day dash worldwide online. Again, that's Red Shoe Day dash worldwide online. Thanks, Aurora. The other thing I'd like to point out is this interview just kept going and going. There was no point at which we could really cut it down. Uh, We thought about editing it and making much shorter, but we just felt we were just cheating uh, the discussion. So we've divided this discussion, our interview, up into three parts, so it'll be easier to listen to uh, if you want to go through the entire, it runs about, what's the total time on it? About half an hour long each. So about an hour and a half total running time, and we thought that'd be easier uh, than just putting out. So we'll put out each section each evening. Usually we're publishing once a week, but this is a special exception for this uh, special project. So before I end up talking another half hour, let's get right to the interview. So I have with me today Lisa Hilton and Kara Smith, and together they're putting together a very special project for Lyme disease awareness called Red Shoe Day, which is coming up very soon on July 25th. Uh, Karen, will you tell us a little bit about it? Yep. Um, July 25th was conceived. uh, It's in memory of Lyme patient um, Theodore Miant from Western Australia in Perth. She passed um, July 25th, 2013. She actually, as her mum, Carol, prefers to call it, euthanized herself. Um, 14 years she was ill. Much of that was um, in her bed. Or um, she did. She searched overseas for many treatments. She went to India, um, then she went to Bali. Nothing she could seem to do would work. She she had ME CFS diagnosis for many many years. Um, 2012, she got a Lyme diagnosis, by which time she'd spent you know um, the better part of 10 years with a constant migraine. Her her. Her life was trying to work out. Her Carol Adams was seventy, so full time full time carer. 
travelled everywhere with her. Um, July 24th last year, Theodore went to see a neurologist and unfortunately the neurologist told her there was nothing more that she could do for her to take the pain away. That seemed to be the last straw of fighting for many, many years for, for Theodore. Theodore had her last admission into a hospital. They had um, locked her in a room with the lights left on and tied her to a bed. Sorry. Um, hospital admission wasn't a choice for her. So that was her, that was her last choice. Um, as she saw it because they wouldn't help her last time she went to the hospital. Um, anyway, so she saw her only choice as taking her own life. So that was July 25th last year. So in the Lyme support group, which was um, Lyme Australia and Friends, which I'd added theatre to in July 2012, when, we, when theatre passed, we, there was a lot of messages in the Lyme support group, Lyme Australian Friends. So July 2012, we did, there was a lot of messages and a lot of, because um, theatre didn't say a lot online. She was um, quite ill to, 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 a lot of the time too ill to, but Carol would be in there and ask questions. And, um so one of the ladies had asked had asked what were her favourite colour was, which was her mum said green, um, unless it was shoes. She loved red shoes. So then another one of her friends went, oh, I have a pair of red shoes. Um, every time I wear, I'll think of theatre, I'll wear my red shoes. And then another lady piped up and said, red shoe day for theatre. So that's basically how it sort of the idea of red shoe day came about. And then... When Lisa, Lisa and I had worked so closely together on, on the Worldwide Lyme Project and we got to know each other really well and we started Worldwide Lyme Borreliosis Association with that and had worked with a lot of the countries. So I said to Lisa, I think we could go international with that, this, just because, you know, theatre happens to be Australian. This, this is something I think a lot of people need a place to acknowledge that we're losing a lot of, we're losing a lot of our, you know, our, our friends from the invisible illness community and it gives and that's why we've sort of tried to encourage that it's a day to remember not only their passing but a day to remember their lives as well so because some people don't talk about it because they're scared of you know the fact that their care the ones they're caring for or their loved ones could be you know could be the next one there's a lot of so by hopefully opening it up and saying look this is we're trying to celebrate their lives not just say that that we've lost another person so and a lot of people we set up Lisa and I we did um to remember the candles we did a six-month anniversary January 25th we did red candle day and that was embraced by I think and we did that very quickly because we were both quite tired and running out of time, but we kind of set that up in two days and we had over 400 people coming and a lot of red candles and oh, a lot of people. countries. Mm. So I think theatre, because of who she was, she was such a beautiful inside and out. She was just a lot of people just embraced that. And so, yeah, so this is, this is the thing. And, you know, Carol's, even for the, the candles, her dad was over in um, Burma and he found a Facebook he found internet connections to actually be able to, you know, say thank you for honouring my daughter for, for all of this. And 
So it means a lot to her parents as well, and it means a lot to to Carol. Um, and Lisa's been in the Lyme community much longer than me. I'm about four years in. Lisa's about ten years in. So, you know, with you can take the rest. You can. <laughs> well, me, me and Karen, like she said, we met doing the Worldwide Lyme um, Project the last couple of years together. And we clicked right away because both of us, like our hearts are just 100% into this and we just want things to change, you know. And right away we noticed we worked well together and we always started, you know, private messaging and then phone calling each other, you know. And we just, we get along on a working level and on a personal level. And I mean, through, I mean, I can say the one good thing Lyme has given me is I've met like the best friends in the world, you know, from all over the world. It's just, it's crazy how we all have connected in this kind of way. <clears throat> and I don't think until the last couple of years there was any kind of uniting internationally with Lyme disease. I think the Worldwide Lyme um, Project was the first time that all the countries got together to fight together, you know, for justice in this. Um, I do run a Lyme memorial on what is Lyme. Um, my website is what whatislyme.com. And I have a memorial site on there and family members of friends you know, send me names whenever somebody passes away from Lyme disease or like more than 50% of them are suicides from Lyme disease. <clears throat> so it's just become like a passion for me to bring attention to it. I've been writing to CNN. I got interviewed by a couple reporters from there, but nobody will do anything because there's not really statistics. You know, they can't prove that they say they can't prove it's because of Lyme disease that people are taking their lives, but they are. And, right. you know, I have a list of names if you're interested in them. And so, yeah, me and Karen thought this would be a good way to bring international attention to this issue. Yeah. I'm so uh, excuse me while I try to gather myself after hearing all that. So, so this, this whole, well, first of all, let's, let's back up even a little bit further my training is as an acupuncturist, and one of the things we talked about in terms of suicide was that the person stopped being connected in different ways. So this whole idea that resonates from every interview that I've done, that, that Lyme is invisible, that you feel if you have this disease, you can just become invisible. And fall through cracks and be misdiagnosed and shunted off to the side. The doctors don't know how to struggle with, with people they, who, who they're struggling with. So they try to refer them out or, or send them on their way. There are very few doctors who want to sit there and, and really just uh, bumble through uh, taking care of somebody, which, which often Lyme disease is like I was reading uh Lisa, on your post, how you're having a great day, and then the next day it's absolute the worst day ever, and that's such such a Lyme disease experience. And I was speaking with Dr. Alan McDonald the other day, and he was mentioning that Lyme disease officially doesn't exist in Australia. Yeah, is that correct? That's correct. Officially. Officially. Right. And how about in Wisconsin? Is it officially a non-disease out there too? It took me over a hundred doctors in fifteen years to have my first Lyme test. So basically, even though we're, I think, the sixth endemic state right now, 
the doctors are trained that there is no Lyme disease here. I had so many doctors tell me that there was not Lyme disease here. Even my disability doctor laughed at me and said, I don't believe in, in chronic Lyme disease. He goes, there's only Lyme disease in New York and Connecticut. He goes, it's not out here. Well, I have to tell you, even here in New York, I'm in New York, an hour away, uh, and we're in central New York, uh, towards Syracuse. I have a good friend who was told within the past four years that no Lyme disease does not exist here either. And so it's, it's, it's maddening. You know, I have a canine map on what is Lyme, um, that shows that Lyme disease is in every single state in every country other than Antarctica. So they realize <laughs> that dogs can get it everywhere, but I guess yeah. humans in certain states are immune, you know? <laughs> and that's the frustrating part. Some of the um, dog studies in Australia show that they, they did have, you know, they're testing positive, but of course it must be false, false, false positives because there's no Lyme in Australia. And um, you guys must have all traveled to Connecticut and back, huh? Oh, yeah, we're just, I guess it's more frustrating in America when you guys, uh, you know, the maps and everything that you guys have over there, the ticks know to stop at the border. You know, we actually have an ocean that they must cross to get here. But our argument or my argument, um, I was doing my, Lisa knows this, Mackay, so I was doing my PhD before I got sick. So I was very much into research. So when I did you know, when I couldn't leave the house, I was my, my research was the only thing that kept me. The long-term hyperperfusion means I don't research so much anymore. Advocacy is the way I go because I can't concentrate as much as what I used to be able to even 18 months ago. But, um, you know, Australia and New Zealand where there is no Lyme because we're in the Southern Hemisphere, we have, we're only second to New Zealand in migrating seabirds, you know, and they've known that, that, Ticks, migrating seabirds carry Lyme the whole way. So we're, and we, back in the 80s, we had 1,000 suspected clinical cases per year here in New South Wales. But of course, you know, they're only, they didn't, the blood test that they did, which surprise, surprise, are the first blood test, um, test for Biberg before he sent so stricto. So this typical senso stricto American strain, which even in Europe, only 5% of your European cases are your senso stricto cases. But Australian government, in all its wisdom, tests for senso stricto and says that the case is tested negative. So my argument was with a 1,000 a thousand suspected clinical cases per year, where is your logic that there is no Lyme in Australia? So, you know, we have over 15 species you should be looking at. So, and uh, you're testing for one and telling us it's not here, besides the fact that, you know, we had the one government research paper in uh, 1994 with its publication date, who happened to be the, the main authors on that paper, happened to be the one that advised the government, and they said that Lyme's not in Australia. You then had half a dozen other papers at that time who suggested that it was. But, of course, they, they followed the one that, that advised the government. So we've got a lot of people... Um, I think when I first joined Facebook, I kind of stalked Lisa. I told her way back then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad uh, you did. There was only six Australians. There was there was six Australians when I joined Facebook in 2011, yelling about Lyme disease. You know, and I was one of them. 
a lot of people, you know, I'm like, I don't care if you think I'm crazy. I'm yelling about Lyme. So I found this, you know, crazy lady called Lisa Hilton who had a lot of followers. <laughs> and, you know, I watched a lot of, I joined the American groups and I watched a lot of what they were doing. Um, and, and just, and read a bit, thought a few of them were crazy because some of them are really full on, you know, if you want to get healthy, you will do this and you won't do that. So some of the groups are like, <gasps> so when, um, I went overseas to the UK for treatment, when I went overseas, I bet I couldn't walk a hundred, hundred odd meters. I hadn't talked for 12 months. I was, I was barely, I was fairly mute for 12 months. Um, I could only talk with a stutter and for five minutes at a time. So here I was jumping on a plane to go to the UK for treatment, thinking I could end up in a strange country, not being able to talk, and they're going to lock, lock me up in customs. Um, but when I got back from there in July, I started a, a, a Lyme group then. So that's when from we've gone from July 2012. I left that when I started the world, when we did the, the worldwide stuff the year after. But that's now at over 800, and there's over a dozen Lyme groups in Australia now, so there's well and truly over a 1,000 people in various groups in Australia. But um, theatre, I joined theatre up to, you would know, one of the bigger Lyme Australia Lyme groups, Lyme 24-7 Hotline with John Coughlin. Yeah, I, run, I am an administrator on that group too. Too, that was her. When she first found out about Lyme, I said to her, "Do you want me to join her up to up to a group?" As the Lyme twenty four seven was her first her first group that I, I joined her up to, and then you know then the, the Australian one in July when I when I come back. So it's all you know we're all interconnected, and I did say to Lisa when we started working together, "Yeah, I've been stalking you, and I, you know don't get don't <laughs> don't freak out by this or anything." But, um, it's been good. It's been good. I mean, like I said, six odd people when I when I first went on there, and now the the, the awareness back in two thousand and eleven that was, um, a lot of the Americans very much thought it was a very just, you know, Lyme disease existed in America. A lot of them were very surprised by the fact it's also, you know, Europe and then you add Australia to it. So that's one thing the worldwide line, you know, working together on that has shown to a lot of people this is all around the world. So Facebook, I remember my, my children tried to, to get me onto Facebook and I'm like, if I want to talk to someone, I'll, um, you know, pick up the phone. But it, it certainly has made a huge difference, I think, to how how well we can connect together around the world for Lyme advocacy. It is it is amazing, and I'm also amazed by how welcoming and open the Lyme community is. Mm. Uh, you really, it, it's it, it's heartwarming. Uh, and and to my my question, since you're both you're both in politics now, right? Like it or not, mm. uh, what? So what needs to shift, Lisa? What needs to shift? You've been doing this for 10, 11 years, you said? Yeah, I got sick back in 1991. I got diagnosed in 2005. And even after getting diagnosed by a regular mainstream doctor, um, the doctor she referred me to when I didn't get better on three weeks of doxy, like just started yelling at me, telling me, why are you diagnosed with Lyme disease? Like it was my fault that I had a positive blood test and a doctor diagnosed me. And that was my first introduction into the controversy. I had no idea. And 
I was like, what's going on? Like, why is a doctor yelling at me? Because another doctor diagnosed me with something. I was in the middle of moving and I had to wait to get my computer hooked up and all this stuff. Finally got to go online and I started researching Lyme disease. And I was shocked. I'm like, oh my God, like this isn't just my current symptoms. This is what I've been going through for 15 years. It's just evolving. And then I started realizing like, this is what I've been sick with like this whole time, you know, and, and all these little other diagnoses I had like fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue, those were all one condition, not 200 little things that I had. It was all one thing. So you got introduced to the controversy surrounding Lyme disease. Now, yeah. Doctors need to be educated. First of all, we need recognition. Second of all, we need research. Third, we need to get that research into the hands of doctors. And they really need to be educated because I hear, I talk to over a hundred people easily, like every couple days. I answer emails all day from my websites and from Facebook, and it's the same story over and over. My doctor said there's no Lyme disease here. I had a negative test. Doctors do not realize that the tests are totally inaccurate, not only for Lyme, but for the co-infections too. And they don't give the tests at the proper time. They don't tell us the patients just because they're negative doesn't mean they don't have Lyme disease. Also, prevention, like if, if we would give people antibiotics right when they got bit, that would stop so many of the cases of chronic Lyme that we have, you know, but they, they're too fast to dismiss it. Um, my mom went in with a tick still embedded with a bullseye rash around it, and the doctor gave her one pill of doxy. Like, what is that going to even do for any infection, a little less Lyme disease? You know, and doctors really need to be educated. So that's what I think. I think, number one, we need recognition of the disease. We need to get rid of the stigma and admit it's a real chronic persistent infection. Number two, um, we need research. And then number three, we need that research to get into the hands of doctors. You know, and, and we need to start doing studies on different treatments and all that kind of stuff. And similar here, when people look at me and sort of they say to me, what, you know, what is the problem with Lyme? My basic explanation in a short, sweet, you know, political thing with Lyme is as far as I see it. For me, I see the problem stemming from the fact in 1980, the American government made it okay to patent and make money from live organisms. Under our skin covers us very well. Um, so, 1980, it's okay, the government's making money off an organism that can, you know, or patent and make money from live organisms. 1981, the Borrelia, the bacteria discovered, you know, um, responsible for Lyme disease is discovered. So Borrelia is able to be patented and made money from. An organism that can cause human infection, they can now make money from. So the, there's thousands of patents on, on Borrelia. So to me, it's about money. It's about that. You can patent and make money from live organisms in 1980. Borrelia discovered we're screwed. We're all screwed. Yeah. <laughs> so you, th- you think that set up a perverse uh, incentive to really narrow the research and really narrow the treatment for this disease to one particular thing, and when that didn't work out, everything ground to a halt? Well, if you if you look at some of the earlier research papers, and I mean, it, there could be, you know, there's a lot of a lot of offshoots and a lot of reasons, but um, 
Sia was talking about vaccines well and truly before the testing a Western blot, what what was positive for a Western blot testing was totally different. Like bands 30, you know, protein bands 31 and 34 used to be acceptable. Um, and when they went across to this steer, the Dearborn, Dearborn conference, you know, that's infamous. That's when all the testing on what was positive and what wasn't positive for the Western blot all changed. And a lot of that was um, steer did did the Western blot testing and he did it with a random European strain and said all of a sudden these 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 are the correct ones and it was all based around the same time they were trying to do the um, vaccines to, to market the vaccine. So vaccine is, is a billion-dollar industry. It's all about money, what you can and can't, you know. I don't believe they'll ever be able to to develop a vaccine for Lyme disease. There's too many. The OSPA, the, the outer surface, you know, variants change too much. I don't think they will, but I originally believed that that 31 and 34 were taken off a Western blot positive because they were what was used as the in the in the in the um, vaccine. So if you had a vaccination, you would come up with 31 and 34. So they needed the test they developed, the dodgy the dodgy research, very dodgy research they did. Um, they used, I think it was a G39 slash 40 strain of Borrelia, which isn't even tested for in, or isn't even used in any of the American or any other testing laboratory except for what they used on this. What really, really gets me as a researcher, if you read that Western block testing, the, the criteria, Steer and others said this is the bands that we're going to use. The other lady, what's her name, there's two papers that they refer to. If you read the second paper and it's a lady that says, she says she can't even match any of their bands in their testing and it should be used with a different gel acromide or anything else like that. So CDC on their testing criteria and what is used for a positive, the two papers they cite as references for this criteria don't even agree with what should be in there. Um, <laughs> it's... it's Yes. It makes it's a, no sense to me. So the politics, right. I think the politics stemmed from America. One of our um, our health officer at the moment used to work for CDC in America. So we see all this. If you look at um, one of my things was the Western Bloc criteria, IDSA, there's 14, 14 IDSA folk. Two of those come from Europe. Now, if you read, so they've got America covered, then they've got Europe covered. So if you read these folks' papers before they actually joined the IDSA thing, they wrote about how bad chronic Lyme could be. All of a sudden, they're on the IDSA guidelines and Lyme's not that bad. What's your problem? So the biggest thing is that we're saying is, you know, and especially for those that are long-term that don't know they've had it, those guidelines and the treatment of six weeks, um, that's for acute infection. There is nothing for chronic infection. I just travelled to to Melbourne. Well, I travelled there last October, November um, to catch up with a couple of Lyme friends, but in specific to see a friend who I'd met through um, Facebook. He's a great guy. He's a quadriplegic, has been, you know, he's 32 years old and lives in an old people's home. He went to Europe in 2003 and got bit by a tick. Um, slowly, you know, his medical chart is like this, the fact that he has still got a smile on his dial and he still fights, you know, but he lost 
2004 lost the use of one arm, by the 2005 had lost the use of the other. 2007, he's um, quadriplegic, can't use his legs. He um, ends up in, you know, uh, induced coma because he's got, you know, he stopped breathing, tracheotomy. He fought like heck to get the, the trachea out, but for them to do that, he agreed to a peg tube because, he, you know, they keep getting food and, and water. So he hasn't eaten seven weeks, seven years he hadn't eaten or drank. We went to, um, he asked me to go to an infectious disease doctor with him in Melbourne, which I did put forward his case, you know, and said, we're not even saying he got it in Australia. This is, I'm not arguing about the Australian situation right now. He was in Europe when he got it. It's well known in Europe. You know, can you give him a pick line? Which the infectious disease officer did, or that he agreed to, he got the pick. And four weeks into it, his voice was stronger. He actually took a sip of water from a cup. Two weeks later, they pulled that pick line because IDSA says you only need eight weeks treatment. Oh, no. So I getting ready is, to celebrate. The IDSA is dictating treatment guidelines around the whole world. And that's why we keep doing, you know, the protests and rallies we're doing because the IDSA in America, the Infectious Disease Society of America, is dictating the treatment of millions of people around the world. You good old Americans, I tell ya. <laughs> well, here's, here's, yeah, well, there's, there's, uh, let me defend America a little bit. Uh, and let's, just a little bit here. Uh, what, this reminds me of my my father was involved in politics and in in the back room stuff, uh, and the way politics is done is not dissimilar for science. And I think what what really we're discovering as as people involved deeply with Lyme disease is how ugly and irresponsible science is. We have this illusion that it's this beautiful thing and the tree. The cream rises to the top and the truth comes out, but it's blood sport mm. and egos and money and egos and uh, money. Egos and, money and power. That's and power, absolutely. And and the, the truth doesn't always come out. It may take a it does eventually, but it may take eighty years. But in the eighty years we have we have people like Theata who are just suffering beyond suffering. Mm. And it's just it's and I, I I'm beginning to understand the 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 it's beyond anger. It's really just rage, just this low level rage at the whole system. That concludes the first segment of this interview with Karen Smith and Lisa Hilton. We'll be releasing the next two sections, number two and number three, on Tuesday and Wednesday. So come back to LimeNinjaRadio.com or iTunes and you'll be able to finish out the interview with us. And please, if you have any feedback, send it to... Feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com Or you can leave comments on the website itself. And we would really appreciate some feedback on iTunes. That helps us climb the charts. And the more we climb the charts, more people hear these great interviews. That's all for now. See you soon. public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. 
Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.